Bethany and Hebron. One afternoon we walked to Bethany by way of the carriage road. It is a pleasant village built upon a curving hillside. We returned over the Mount of Olives, going up through orchards all dry and dusty. We passed several holes in the ground. What they were, I could not tell. The habitations of dead men, perhaps. A scavenger dog, lean as a rake, emerged from one of them, and upon seeing us, put itself into a great passion. I could have counted every bone in its body, and we could not get rid of it. Its fury seemed to mount and mount. What a cursed enemy it was to us that afternoon, utterly destroying the tranquillity of our walk. It was grey in colour with a great sore on its backside. The hills were covered with loose stones, burnet shrubs and other thorns were growing everywhere, also a quantity of dead thistles. After the dog left us, we rested for a while. We could see the road winding up from Jericho, with wild, deserted country on both sides of it, while far away like molten lead in the afternoon sun was the Dead Sea. It was a view of intense interest. To the south was clearly visible the hill of the Franks where the body of Herod the Great was buried, while grazing on the nearby slopes were goats black as flies. Out of a crevice at our feet a small beetle emerged. It stood for a moment behind a crumb of earth and then withdrew once more into its infinitesimal cave. I suppose in the long line of its descent the centuries were as nothing. When Shimei cast dirt at King David, its progenitors have, must have been present on the hill, employed as now under the mandate of nature in their uninterrupted search for food. In the rustling night air during those hours when Jesus and his disciples were sleeping in Bethany, just such beetles were pursuing unnoticed their intimate purposes, unswayed by hope, by fear, by thought, or by the love of God. We came over the crown of the hill and saw Jerusalem before us with tower and rooftop bright in the afternoon sun. On the way down we passed two or three open cisterns into which a man might easily fall on a dark night. The wall of the Garden of Gethsemane was to our left, but the priests have had their way too much with this traditional site. We felt no temptation to loiter near it. Many crows flew over our heads and I heard a raven croak the first since we were at Rhodes. The American colony had a peculiar atmosphere. Before every meal a grace was sung which began, God is great and God is good and we thank him for our food. Their table, in truth, was of the best. I met there a man who had been on a boat which carried me to Africa at the time of the outbreak of the Great War. He was then an official in the Protectorate. He was so essentially English that I could not but admire him. He had hardly altered at all, the same healthy, trustworthy face, the same athletic body, the same utter unawareness of his own limitations. It used to amuse me to look at his back, sloping in from the shoulders like the back of a country cricketer, embarrassed and yet decorous, while the singing was in progress. His large, competent hands folded behind him. At our table were two little, tight, provincial American gentlemen who kept fortifying each other in their illiberal ideas. One of them was a village schoolmaster from the southern states. Next to me sat a dark, handsome young man who turned out to be the son of a frock-coated Syrian missionary I had met in Alexandretta. He was astonished when I took out of my wallet a scrap of his father's handwriting. 
He was obviously clever and enlightened, but like the rest of us in that assembly, was diligent to hide his more candid thoughts. We slept in a large room with many windows. Two of them looked out upon Mount Scopus. The room was reached by an outside staircase, and as I went to bed each night I was never tired, sebaced as I am, of raising my head to the constellation clear and undistracted as upon the night of the nativity. One day we went to Hebron. We drove in a native bus, starting from below the Jaffa Gate, and we were passing the tomb of Rachel. I caught a glimpse of the figure of the American village schoolmaster climbing a hill to get a better view of the building. He certainly looked very homely and familiar. I could give no conception of how indurated the little man was in his native prejudices. Our road led us through a country full of stones and rocks and wild hills. When we reached Hebron, we went first to the mosque that stands over the cave of Machpelah. The sun was already hot, it was impossible to get inside the building. I looked through a tiny hole and saw the stone covered with some green drapery, marking the place below which the bones of Jacob are said to lie. We saw the stairway where the Jews come to wail, and where a green arrow painted upon the wall indicates the exact step above which it is forbidden them to go. Who could have predicted that so great a matter should have come from Abraham's embraces of Sarah? Who could have foretold the long-drawn-out procession of descendants that would be the result of his lovemaking on some spring evening, when his heifers were fattening upon the first flush of green grass? I would have liked mightily to see them all there, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, with Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah, Six skeletons, six animal skeletons lying in their cavern alone with dust and darkness for so many centuries. Yet in the computation of the Earth's history, these burials may be said to have happened but yesterday. Those dolorous afternoons, the afternoon when Esau and Jacob buried Isaac, and the other afternoon when Joseph settled into its place the hieroglyphic coffin of his father Jacob, these patriarchs here had scarce occasion to yawn once in their house of death, and behold, Christ had been crucified twice, and our own hour has come and gone forever. None but an over-curious old crusading knight has ever set eyes upon the vaulted dome of Abraham's skull, poking out of its domity shroud. Of the skull of this man of sublime confidence has seen his ribs fallen in like the spokes of a crab pot and the delicately adjusted morsels of bone that made up the feet upon which he once stood to welcome the angels at the gate of his tent. We went for a walk over the hills. To the east we could see the wild country of Engedi. Everywhere rocks projected their grey poles into the sunlight, and the grapes were hanging heavy in the vineyards, and each olive tree stood in its own pool of shadow. Looking back over Hebron, I was content. There was nothing to controvert the emphatic mood of antiquity that was stamped upon the place. As old as its rocks, it seemed to be. In the afternoon, we returned to the town and wandered about through its arched alleyways. I wished to buy a pair of native shoes to bring back to my home, as Tom Coriat did. I found some made out of camel's hide. Abraham boots for an Abraham man, 
and was well pleased with them, though I noticed last summer that they were provocative of mirth in the city of Bath where I wore them on the occasion of a visit to Lasborough Park. We had some difficulty in finding a place in a bus. Many drifting Arab guides took upon themselves to try to cajole us into engaging a private car. When against all remonstrance we eventually found seats in an overcrowded conveyance, they followed us to the door, shouting out that the carriage we had chosen was lousy. From the moment of our start there was no variation in the speed of our going till we reached the Jaffa Gate. Apprehension never left me for a moment. The conveyance went for Jerusalem up and down hill like a cottontail rabbit for its hole. An Arab opposite stared steadily at me throughout the whole journey. Look where I might, I was always conscious of his unfeeling gaze. He sat with his hand upon his staff in an attitude that had something not ignoble about it. Two boys lay on the floor at our feet, sometimes resting their dusty heads against us. I presently gave the staring Arab a friendly friendly smile. Without any response, he turned his head away for a moment only. However, a second later, to resume his original concentration... The Walls of Jerusalem The day following our excursion to Hebron, we set out to walk around the walls of Jerusalem. It was very hot. I thought by circumambulating the city in this manner I would come to know it in a peculiarly intimate way, and indeed I have never for a moment regretted that morning's occupation. I was able to register in my memory the position of each gate, to learn how the city looked from each quarter of the compass. When we reached the southeast of the city, not far from the cornerstone of the temple area, we followed a mud path down the hill. I knew that we must be passing over King David's original city, the city of Ophel, though now the ground was given up to native allotments. Prickly pears were growing everywhere, and the plots were being irrigated by a filthy stream of sullage. Small wonder there is danger in eating salad in the country. As we came down our path, we noticed before us a crowd of native workmen, some thirty or more in all, busy at preparation, busy at excavation work. I assumed that they were preparing a site for a new house to be built. They carried earth away in baskets on their heads, and as they followed each other, naked except for a loincloth, they kept chanting in unison some slave song. There were Arab overseers standing about with scourges in their hands, so and in no other way, we thought, must the pyramids have been built. It was not till the evening that I discovered what was really in progress. Excavations to search out and find the tomb of King David. In my secret heart, I hoped that those who had undertaken this enterprise would lose their money. I have no wish to see this royal tomb ravished. Let the two kings lie undisturbed by our vulgarities, unmindful of bloodshed, unmindful of glory their delight with their woman forgotten even, in the undemanding peace of the grave. We went down to the lower pool of Siloam, and I bathed my face and chest, hoping to better my condition, which had been giving me anxiety. I was walking too much. I felt this madness would be the death of me. I was aware of renewed activity in my lungs and of a fever in my blood. Some native woman washing at the pool laughed merrily to see how I doused the water over my shoulders, regardless of propriety. We came up the Valley of Jehoshaphat, under the cliffside village. 
I never saw such mixins, such litter. The whole slope was honeycombed with the graves of Jews. Bones bury bones here. Hebrew bones to Hebrew soil. Hebrew soil to Hebrew bones. And yet, never one of them, for all the words of the Torah, will rise from the dead. The comfortable Sadducees were right. Dust is their diet. As we came up the hill to the Damascus Gate, I felt overdone by the heat. My chest ached. I was happy to get back to our room where I could lie still on the bed. The next day we planned to visit Jericho. I wanted to see the ruins of the ancient city and listen to the wind in the balsam trees there. Herod the Great derived great delight from the naughty waters of the place. Cleopatra had immeasurably loved its flowers, even going so far as to carry cuttings of them back with her to Egypt. I felt tired when I walked, but came down to breakfast with my head full of our intentions. The conversation that morning turned upon the lynching of Negroes, and the little tough American schoolmaster made it very clear that in he in no way deprecated the custom. He asked me whether I had ever lived in the South, and when I said I had not, he remarked that it was impossible for anyone who did not know the conditions at first hand to pass judgment. I detected a tremor of emotion in his voice, and immediately there ran along my own veins a current of unreasoning fury. I would not have thought it possible that the provincial opinions of this meeting-house pedagogue could so have moved me. I laid down my porridge spoon, and was just about to give expression to the indignation I felt when I was taken ill. I lay in bed for many days, and yet never spat white. For twenty years I have been sick, and yet blood can never come from my chest without my concluding for a certainty that now at last the end of my protracted reprieve has arrived. How can I be allowed to continue gathering, after my fashion, golden hours out of the years? I lay perfectly still. I am deprived of the residue of my years. I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world, like a crane or a swallow, so did I chatter. For the purpose of transcribing correctly these celebrated words, I just now left my open-air shelter to fetch my Bible. I had not reached the house when I was confronted by a doe rabbit ambling along toward me close to the garden wall. I had never seen a rabbit so near to the house before. I soon, however, was given a good reason for its temerity. A stoat was after it. As soon as the little gentleman in his white waistcoat saw me, he hesitated. In a second, however, he came on again. The rabbit sat still at my feet. It was not sweating, but its large brown eye had fright in it. I clapped my hands and the stoat skipped away, almost standing upright on his hind legs. The rabbit was saved. I saw it go off, and though I watched from a distance, there was no sign of its enemy again. So, and not otherwise, has God clapped his hands for me. Not once, nor twice. For the grave cannot praise thee, death cannot celebrate thee, they that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. The living, the living he shall praise thee, as I do this day. Presently I was better, and able to sit by the window watching the goats on Mount Scopus. We decided to leave the country without more delay. If we could arrive at Port Said, 
we could get a boat from there to Naples. On the last afternoon before we left Jerusalem, I walked as far as the garden tomb, but was not allowed entrance to it, and then reached the point in the Nablus Road from which we first see the Damascus Gate. It was the last glimpse that I had of the city. There were Arabs with a flock of native sheep under the walls, and I saw a camel whose front legs had been tied up so that it could not bend either knee, being unbound. All the time that the man was freeing it, it kept twisting its tortoise head round, uttering groans. Opposite the garden tomb grows a fine mulberry tree. Many of its leaves were lying on the road, crisp and dry. I picked up one of them and put it in my wallet. Before we were back at the American colony, the sun had gone down behind Jerusalem. Toward the Mount of Olives, the sky was a dark purple. The train took us first through the high ravines of the Judean mountains. There were many carob trees growing on the rocky slopes. And how clear the outlines of the grey hills were against the bright Syrian sky. Yesterday, while I was skinning a rabbit, I drove a rusty nail as I was chopping off its feet clean through my index finger. Because I did not notice that nail sticking up out of the board, I shall now get blood poisoning or worse, I thought. My brother, Theodore, I knew, would have examined the board with the most utmost suspicion from the first. More full lie not to have done so. He had the heart of a rabbit, and he died skinning a rabbit. For surely I have the craven in me. I was conscious of it during that first hour of that journey. I seemed to feel that something was again wrong, and hardly ventured to breathe. I sat still, looking out of the window. The train stopped at a small station, and a pretty native girl stepped straight up to my carriage and presented me with a nosegay of wild flowers, like ragwort to look at, but very aromatic. This chance gift I took to be a happy omen, and during all the day I did nothing but smell the flower knot. I have it in my ditty box still. I enjoyed crossing the plain that separates the Judean hills from Lydda. It was where David heard the going in the branches of the mulberries. The shepherds were watering the sheep at the wells. We could see ploughing in progress. Sometimes it was a camel in harness, sometimes a mule, once an ox and an ass yoked together. Dead thistles were visible, especially the variety that is silvered over. Presently we passed the Philistine cities, with tracts of yellow sands between them and the sea, for already we were approaching the deserts. As we drew near to Egypt, we passed several lovely village oases. Date palms grew everywhere. The fibrous nests of the fruit were of an orange-red colour. The very hedges of the cultivated plots were constructed out of interwoven palm leaves. We were now close to the Mediterranean, and I saw a young man with a copper-coloured body run lightly over the yellow sands into a green sea, crested white with curling waves. I would have liked nothing better than to have wandered off into the wilderness to the south. I saw naked ridges of sand stretching one behind the other, ribbed by the wind and perfectly immaculate. In a little time I was watching the sun go down golden over a golden desert, while to the north of the railway tracks there floated clouds coloured like the feathers of a flamingo. Anna Capri. From Alcantara we drove through the still autumn night to Point Port Said. 
On one side of us was the canal, and on the other a dike filled with water from the Nile. The smell of the delta, the smell of Egypt, was around us. Flags and feathery rushes grew on both sides of the way. Now and again, through some open space, we could see the canal with dark, shadowy steamers lighted at the prow, moving slowly down it. Bats were flickering through the airy levels above our heads, levels cooled by the night dew. Before us was the North Star. We did not return to England. We spent the remaining months of that winter on the island of Capri. It was here that I wrote The Cradle of God, sitting upon a small balcony in Anacapri, looking out toward Vesuvius. I had a presentiment that the island would prove a harmonious place to work in, and so it turned out. As I wandered about the rocky ledges grown over with rosemary and myrtle and red-berried arbutus trees, the meditations that had been provoked by my travel slowly fell into place. Whenever we drove to the village from Capri, we used to pass under an image of the Virgin high up on the cliffs, and always our driver would remove his cap. It was just here that an avalanche of enormous rocks fell one morning, obstructing the road and leaving wide gaps in the wall. How childishly superstitious is the mind of every one of us. When the road was clear, our driver assured us that we had been spared only through the intervention of Our Lady. As he spoke, he uncovered his head. We were being followed by another carriage driven by an old man. Our postboy kept looking back at him. Why should he still be driving, he said, when times are so hard? His bones are old. They ought to have been in the grave years ago. Yet here he still is, taking fears from us and stuffing his guts every evening with expensive macaroni. I wandered into the little church. Before the altar was a wooden catafalque, placed obviously to support a coffin. Its design was 17th century and it must have been painted at that same date. Always as arrested as I am by anything that has to do with death, I looked curiously at the coloured symbols it showed. Bones and skulls, skulls and bones. We must all come to it. The vivid impressions that we get, gone in a moment. Our treasured sensations as though they had not been. For all breathing life there is no other reality than what was here represented. Skulls with eye sockets filled with mud. It does not matter. Nothing matters. The triumph of the Romans, the story of the Jews... The chaste passion of Jesus are in the timeless halls of eternity, nothing. So I thought, and then suddenly as I sat in that empty church I heard a distant chanting. The priests were coming. With bells and candles and resonant voices these old men were carrying into the church a corpse. I stood up. The procession passed close to where I was. There were nearly a dozen priests attached to this one village and most of them were aged. They were dressed in lace. I looked at their venerable heads, belling out their dirge. What manner of man was it whom they were carrying to the burial? For a moment I envied him, this man, the mute object of so ancient a ceremony. An outcast in thought. And then suddenly there came surging through me my old pagan confidence, and I knew myself to be the son of more ancient loyalties. These venerable mumblers have been spoiling life for too long. They derive their sustenance out of the very fear of death. They beset our minds. 
Why should I be abashed before this medieval pageantry? My beliefs have their roots in a more ancient and genial soil. If the offices of these men were confined to the proprieties of the cradle and the coffin alone, they would do no great harm. It is our understanding that they injure, tormenting without surcease, our inner beings with their theological quillets. It is time that they were gone. We certainly spent happy days in the little mountain village. We used to walk in the afternoons exploring the coastline, and then return toward dusk, following behind old agriculturalists coming in from their vineyards, their feet wrapped round in muffled flannel footwear. We would buy honey and rusks at the village shop, already lighted up, and would return to our rooms with minds tranquil and happy. Each evening I would buy the Continental Daily Mail to see if King George was any better. In the late spring we moved to the Piccolo Mariner. It was much warmer down there. In one grotto we used to find tiny coloured fragments from Rosent Roman mosaics. Excuse me. Roman mosaics. We would search for hours, kneeling and letting the shingle run through our fingers. By sifting the gravel in this way we had presently a collection of morsels of pagan decoration. These grottos were far more startling than I had ever imagined. We used to hire a boat and row from one to another of them. I never saw such magical caves. Now the water was of the brightest blue, brighter than sea or sky, now of brightest green, brighter far than spring grass, now redder than the petals of a poppy. Surely in such recesses it would be possible to be happy without the burden of responsibility. How these treacherous theatrical sea caves tempt and tantalise. Other secret satisfactions they seem to hint at, in actual fact, invalid? Who is able to say? One grotto, which our fishermen called the Cave of the Saints, held another message. The rocks here had fallen in the postures of living men. As we rode away I saw them lying there together, one behind another, recumbent figures innocent for all time of anything but an absolute tranquillity. Pompeii. Before we left Capri, the almond blossom had fallen and the hillside behind the Hotel Weber was covered with beautiful bushes of flowering spurge. Each bush was as large as the lavender bush on the top lawn at home. They were of the lightest green, and the yellow blossoms appeared embedded in their tender foliage, like the eyes of the tail of a green peacock. Before the sun got up, each leaf would hold a drop of silver dew and a twig, if broken off, would weep tears of white milk. I wished to see the ruins of Pompeii before going north. The sun was shining brightly when we walked up its narrow streets with ruts of the Roman chariot wheels still visible on both sides of the way. I looked at the temples. The temple dedicated to Apollo, and at the temple of Isis. The deities had fled. But as we stood there, on their terraces of white marble, the sun still fell with delicate light assurance upon the wisteria blossoms clustering over the distant wall. I asked a guide to show me some of the bawdy houses of which I had heard. He sent me off down a side street, telling me to enter the doorway of the third house on the left. I did so, but could see nothing to differentiate it from the others. However, when I came out again into the alley, I happened to raise my eyes, 
and there over the lintel was an enormous erect codpiece painted red. It was then that I got my first reaction against unredeemed sensuality. The brutal realism of this sign added to the matter-of-fact paintings of complicated physical indulgence which I afterwards saw in the various stews made me entertain a suspicion of the wisdom that holds the highest good to be derived from the gratification of one's carnal desires. When moralists have used words like bestiality, I have never felt impressed. I have never been one to disapprove of nature's mandates, even though they should involve the most elaborate immodesties. Such pastimes, I have said, are the rightful heritage of all free spirits, and with their indulgence the poison is taken out of that black, stagnating sediment of envy and malice. I still hold this view, yet there was, I must confess, something about the brutal effrontery of these celebrated paintings that reduced my callow enthusiasm. Something sordid, something that crushed life in its most sensitive nerve centre. I did not like to see these Romans at it. More than could a thousand platonic platitudes, they corrected my judgments. In the museum at Naples, I had examined a marble sarcophagus decorated with troops of boys and girls dancing. They were represented naked and taking their pleasure. Was it the essential delicacy of Greek taste that rendered the frieze so altogether harmonious, causing me to long to be honoured with just such a sepulchre? Is it, after all, a matter of taste? Were the Roman pictures discouraging because they reflected what was actually vulgar and bare in the Roman character, irrespective of the subject portrayed? We reached the last houses and, climbing up a bank, sat in a cornfield. From this position we could look over the whole town. The houses were... Oh, excuse me. These pages haven't been separated. I'll just knife them open and then we can continue reading. Well, I guess that means I'm the only person to have read this book since it was first published in 1937. Otherwise this page would be open. Not often you get to hear this sound these days. The houses were built very close together and were small and grey in colour. Every acre of the area was intersected with streets and alleys. There were brambles and nettles growing up on the bank, up the bank which we had scrambled. There were briars of actually throwing out hooked trailers against the heathen paint on the walls. It seemed to me extraordinary to be able to come walking over a cornfield up to the very back courts of this Roman town. If we had never heard of Pompeii, how amazed we would have been. Surely the plaster in the doorway before me looked no different from what I see every day in England in the masonry of ruined cottages unvisited except by midsummer lovers. With my head full of novel doubts I entered a nearby church, far famed for its miracles. Above the altar there were endless gifts presented to it by the innumerable people who had been cured. 
In one of the side aisles, there was a full-sized image of Jesus on the cross. It was a cheap and tawdry work, but executed with shocking realism. It represented a weak man with a sentimental, untrustworthy face. From the hands and feet and from the forehead and side, blood was flowing. Also from the knees, where the skin had been scraped off. This, then, was what the generations in my own age had come to worship. How provocative to one's intellectual curiosity was such a choice. Surely our psychology cannot be sound. This sophisticated religion is a toadstool of suffering. It has come up by accident from a rotten and twisted branch. It has been brought to birth by the agony of an unnatural travailing. Where is the white light, the cool gladness to be seen on the forehead of Apollo? What has the passionate peasant of Galilee to do with so morbid a revelation? It was impossible to be deceived. There was something wrong here, something complicated, something unwholesome. If the Pompeian brothels depressed one, so did this too. I longed for sanity, for sweet tolerance, for a grace and indulgence that would grow up like grass in a meadow uncontorted either by unnatural superstitions or by unnatural vice. I have no taste for sadism, whether it be secular or sanctified. Primordial Matter We had been staying in Naples for a week or more when we had visited Solfatara, the saucer of the hill in which the crater is situated had a diameter of two or three hundred yards. It was indeed almost exactly the same size as the interiors of those dead volcanoes which surround Lake Almenteata. I could almost imagine I was back in Africa. It was from the top of just such rugged ridges that I had watched a rhinoceros standing motionless and somnolent with red-billed tickbirds on its brown back. There was no African vegetation on these hills, however, only bushes of broom and myrtle. A guide led us down into the steaming basin. The ground over which we walked was too hot to touch, and when I struck it with my stick it sounded hollow. The active hole of the crater had a diameter of about twenty yards. We came up to its very edge. The noise was deafening. It was audible for miles around. We stood to the windward of the steaming cauldron and peered down. Within ten feet of us was a pool of boiling mud. It was like looking into a devil's cauldron. What an unlidded saucepan was this. I had seen Vesuvius at play. I had stood on the inner ridge of that mountain of cinders and watched the central cone casting stones into the air. But it had not impressed me half as much as this glimpse into the fundamental substance of the earth. I could not take my eyes off that stewing pan of bubbling clay, rising and falling, rising and falling. It was like looking at the ultimate element of the stars. It was like watching a primordial matter at work, before ever there was a mind to contemplate it. Against the turgid jorum of mud, the accidental irrelevance of human life became plain. The accidental irrelevance of all life. Here was the basic slime, unredeemed, the seething sludge out of which we were made. 
There was something shocking, appalling in the very crudeness of its lifeless assertion. If it were ever possible to witness with alert senses some wild cosmic catastrophe far off in the unconscious coal sacks of space, one would experience the same detached awe. It was like inspecting the original elements of God's workshop, and each naked soul who looks into the pit can do naught but shiver. What force, what power was here, and how unconcerned and how pitiless. It was from such pots of perdition that the glory and wonder of life was born. The little cyclamen in the mountainside at Fiumi owes its dainty contrivance to just such a rude circumstance. The busy, wing-poised hornet and the carob tree derived from it. The mystery of Jesus rose out from the same raw, lenty pond. It was before and it will be afterward. This is the solid mirror across which our phantoms flit. And yet, though we are denuded of all positive assurance, though we step without protection along our separate paths of expectation, we have not been betrayed. The justification of this mystery lies in the mystery itself. For every spirit come to life with its moment of duration, there is small room for complaint. We have been permitted to pass certain hours in the coasts of light. Gusts of religious feeling have troubled our bodies. Out of gross beginnings, tenderness has sprung up like snowdrops out of wintry mould. Shame and suffering and horror there are, but there is also a whispering in the wind. All is not lost. From the beginning to the end of life there is poetry. Poetry.